Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we'll conclude uh, Hebrews chapter 12 today. Uh, as we've been walking through this chapter, uh, I've asked, uh, presented to you at least, a series of questions. Uh, questions pertaining to what it really means to, to live by faith. Uh, we see this picture that the writer in Hebrews gives us uh, that living by faith is a race. It's running a race. It's a race that God has set before us. So in Hebrews 12, he starts out with that call to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so our focus is to be set on Jesus as we run this race. And so as we run the race, uh, we need to be on guard against becoming weary. And so we, we looked in this chapter at how can we uh, run this race without growing weary? Well, we need to look to Jesus. We need to keep a perspective that's informed by the Word of God. We need to remember God's Word and read it and believe it. And we need to trust that God is sovereign and at work uh, for His glory and for our good. And then last Lord's Day, we, we looked at what it looks like to strive for holiness as we run this race. That we need to press on through discouragement. That we need to strive for peace with everyone, that we need to turn away from all bitterness, and we need to be on guard against being deceived by the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so we've been looking at these questions in hopes that it will better prepare us to run the race that God has set before us. And so we're going to continue with this race analogy as we finish up chapter 12 by looking today at just the continual encouragement that we need to stay on course and run the race that God has set before us. And so today we're going to look at Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. And this is what God's Word says. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of those uh, of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, 
let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. If you would pray with me. Father, help us to walk according to your word. Help us not just to be hearers of your word. Help us to be doers of your word. And this can only be accomplished through the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would indeed empower us through your Holy Spirit to do what your word calls us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last couple of Lord's Days, I've started out with a, an illustration related to the New York City Marathon. And so I, I did quite a bit of, of just research on the New York City Marathon. And I wanted to share one more story from it uh, because it was a headline that really caught my attention as soon as I started reading a bit about the marathon. Now, the headline came just after the 2015 New York City Marathon, and this is what the headline read. Missing runner found on subway two days after marathon. The story went on to tell about how a a group had come over from Italy to compete in the race. And one of these Italian runners who didn't know any English, who was extremely unfamiliar with New York City, at some point during the race, he got separated from his group. And it turned out that his race became much longer than everyone else because he strayed off course. Now this runner, somewhere along the 26.2 miles, lost his group. They finished, but he was nowhere to be found. Race organizers began to look for him, but as they said in this article, it appeared that he had disappeared into thin air. It wasn't until two days after the race that an off-duty New York police officer was riding on the subway and reading an article in the newspaper about this missing runner when he looked up and lo and behold, sitting across from him on the subway was a man dressed in a running outfit that looked disoriented, that looked lost, that looked hungry, that looked anxious. And he soon realized that this was the missing Italian runner. He had been lost for two days because he lost his way and he simply did not stay on course. The picture that we've been given in Hebrews chapter 12 is that our faith is a race. We are to endure, we are to persevere. It is a marathon, not a sprint. And if we're going to cross that finish line into glory one day, then we must stay on course. And so as we look to this last section of Hebrews 12, I want us to look to the encouragement that we have here on staying on course. As we look at one more question, the question of how can we stay on course as we run the race? Well, this passage gives us a very clear picture of that and the first answer we have on how we can stay on course is this number one we need to remember that we are running on a new covenant course 
We need to remember that the course that God has set before us is based entirely on the new covenant that's made possible through our mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to give us that picture, the writer here presents us with a picture of two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, the writer here doesn't specifically say Mount Sinai, but it becomes very clear as we read the passage that he is talking about this historic mountain where God gave his word to the people through their mediator, through Moses. And we read about that encounter in Exodus chapter 19 where we see this picture of God as a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. You cannot read Exodus 19 without seeing a picture there that God is terrifyingly holy and righteous and pure. God's presence there when he speaks is so terrifying that we read that the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Again, in verse 21 we read, indeed it was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And the people in verse 20 were reminded could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. The picture we have in Exodus 19 and in Hebrews 12 is of a holy, pure, righteous God who terrifies the people. So why is the writer of Hebrews at this point in his address, as he's coming into the closure of his letter to these Hebrew believers, why is he reminding God's people of this picture? I think very simply he's reminding them that as new covenant believers, that as they run this race that God has set before him, them, that they are running a race to Mount Zion and not a race to Mount Sinai. He's reminding them of the new covenant. He's reminding them that Mount Sinai, it represents the old covenant. But they are running a race on a course of the new covenant. Mount Zion, as the writer refers to it here, is the eternal city of God. And that is what they are to set before them as they run this race. But if they get confused, If they confuse an old covenant course with a new covenant course, or if they try to run the race to Mount Zion, but run it in an old covenant way, well, they won't stay on course. And so he's reminding them there, he's warning them here of what it looks like when they don't, and at their absolute need to, run according to the new covenant. In essence, he's saying to them, runners need to know their course. Now, Again, I'm not a runner, but I know enough about running to know you, you can't run a course like you would run an entirely different course. There's different ways to run based on the course. And so if you're going to run a marathon, you don't run a marathon like you're going to run a 100-yard dash. And you don't run a 100-yard dash like you're running a marathon. You need to know your course, and then you need to run according to that course that you are about to run on. And what the writer here is saying to the people is, know your course. You don't run a new covenant race like you're still under the old covenant. And if you do that, well, you're going to get frustrated and you're going to not finish the race. He's saying to the people that we are running to Mount Zion, 
We're running on a new covenant course. We don't need to fear Mount Zion like the people and uh, the people of old feared Mount Sinai. We are running this race to this mountain being invited into the presence of God. We come through the blood of Jesus. God is still and will always be just as holy as he was on Mount Sinai. But the difference now is we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who invites us in and covers us by his blood. This is a reminder to us of the beauty of the gospel. That we don't come to God through our achievements. That we don't come to God through our perfect obedience to His law. That we don't come to God because we've achieved achieved some type of righteousness of our own. No, we come to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are covered by His blood. He has made us pure. He has made us righteous. So we are invited in now to the presence of God at Mount Zion. We need to know our course. Notice the picture that he gives us here of this course running to Mount Zion. This gathering, this assembly, innumerable angels and the saints who've gone before us into the presence of God because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. So how how does this practically affect us? What, What does it really look like? to run a new covenant race on a new covenant course? And and what will frustrate us? What would it look like for us to try to run on a new covenant course in an old covenant way? Well, very clearly, we we see here a picture of that, and we see it throughout God's Word. That that race to Mount Sinai was a race on an old covenant course. It was a race based on works. And many people are still trying to run this race today. And so you take, for example, um, let, let's say that you, you lie to someone and you feel convicted about this lie. Well, a race based on works, an old covenant race then, would lead you down a course of then vowing not to lie anymore. You would try really hard not to lie. You would make up your mind. You would try to will yourself. Well, I don't want to lie anymore. I'm not going to lie anymore. But guess what? You're going to lie. <laughs> Because you're a sinner and you're going to stumble. And so that old covenant race, that, that's an, a, an attempt at salvation by works. But your works condemn you. And therefore, that race to Mount Sinai is a reminder that you are separated from God. I mean, again, consider the picture that's given here in Hebrews 12. God gave a picture of separation. He, he drew a boundary around the mountain. He says if even your animal crosses over it, they're going to die. And yet compare that to the picture of Mount Zion where we are invited in, where we come into the presence of a holy God in the eternal city of God. So take again that example of lying. Under the new covenant, we still sin, we still fall short, we still may find ourselves lying, but the way we respond to that lie is radically different as we're running this new covenant race because now it's a race based on grace. And so when we are convicted, when we fall short, when we lie or do anything else, then we have this opportunity to place our trust and our hope fully in Jesus. That's why we read in John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so what do we do when we fall short? We repent. And we place our trust in Jesus. We confess our sin. And God's word tells us he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that we might come into the holy presence of God. 
So the old covenant race is a, a race of sinning and feeling guilty and vowing and trying harder. And maybe in our trying harder, we get better for a while. But then we just sin again and we feel guilty and we vow to try harder. And we do that over and over again. It's a roller coaster. And eventually we get frustrated with it and we just throw in the towel and we leave the course. But that's radically different than what we're called to as new covenant believers. Here we're called to run this race and to endure and persevere. And when we fall short, we, we come to Jesus. We trust in Jesus. We repent and we turn from our sin as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So how do we stay this course? Well, first we need to remember that we're running on a new covenant course. Second, we need to live in obedience to God's word. Well, we've seen this reminder already in Hebrews, and here we see it again, that this need to, to not just listen to the word, not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Notice again in verse 25, the writer says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And he's saying you need to listen to the word of God. And then he pulls our attention back to Mount, back to Mount Sinai. For, for if they speaking to the, the, the Israelites during the Exodus, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So we have differences during the old and new covenant, but what remains the same is the word of God is holy and just and true, and we must live according to it. The difference is now God empowers us through the power of his Holy Spirit as new covenant believers. He empowers us to do this very thing. To live in obedience to the word. And so the writer here is making an argument very clearly that the new covenant we are under through Jesus, it, it is so superior to the old covenant. That Mount Zion is superior to Mount Sinai because now we have access to God through Jesus and we are empowered to do these things through the spirit of God. With that in mind... The writer then reminds us what happened to the Exodus generation when they refused to obey God's word. And he warns us not to do the same mistake they did. R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, God's voice speaking the gospel must be listened to with even greater attention and faith than the law spoken at Sinai. So how do we stay on course as we run this race? We live in obedience to God's word. We see to it that we do not refuse him who is speaking. So friend, today, are you living in obedience to God's word? And I ask that question in this way. Are you living in obedience to all of God's word? You see, for so many of us, we tend to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to obey. We often do that by looking at things in our life that seem to align with what God calls us to do. Well, we can obey there because that's what we're already doing. And we kind of pick and choose those parts that we're going to obey. And then we turn a blind eye to other parts. But, but the call here from Scripture is to live in obedience to all of God's Word. So you just take, for example, the area of sexual immorality. So many in the church today rightly condemn homosexuality because the Scripture condemns homosexuality. And yet, for so many in the church today, we turn a blind eye to no-fault divorce. We turn a blind eye to cohabitation, to premarital intimacy. 
We pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to obey. Do you take the consistent command in God's word to love our neighbor? We seem to be okay with that as long as our neighbor looks like us and talks like us and thinks like us. And we seem to struggle more when they don't. And we pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to obey. And we have become selective in the sins that we condemn and the sins that we call others to repent of. Or to put it in the words of the writer of Hebrews, we have refused to listen to him who is speaking. And we are given the warning here not to do that. We are given the reminder here that God's word is God's word, all of it in its entirety, and we must live under its authority. We cannot pick and choose the parts we will obey. We must live according to all of it. The primary concern of the believer as we come to the Word of God should always be, what does God's Word say and how can I live in obedience to it? And as we come to passages that begin to bring conviction in our life rather than turning and going somewhere else, we need to stay under that conviction. We need to ask the Lord, what do I need to repent of? We don't need to look around the world and the culture or even the church and compare ourselves to others and say, well, they're doing it. It must be okay. No, we need to come under the authority of the word of God. And we need to ask God, what is okay? What is he calling us to? Now, how do we rightly live in obedience to his word? What do we need to repent of? Now, there's a picture here for us, friends. A clear warning of people who did not take obedience to God's word seriously and they perished in the desert. They did not finish the race. And if we will not live in obedience to God's word, friends, that is a picture of what will happen to us as well. We will not finish the race. We will not stay on course. How do we stay on course? We, we live in obedience to God's word. And then number three, we place our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Well, we're reminded of this in this passage where, where the writer here again is comparing and contrasting the old with the new. Sion, uh, Sinai with Zion, this picture of Zion and the, the new covenant hope that we have through Jesus. is one that the writer has been giving us throughout his letter and building up to this argument throughout his letter that we need to place our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Chapter 1, verse 12, we read that Christ will roll up the heavens and the earth like a garment, but he will remain. Chapter 8, verse 13, the advent of the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete and growing old along with its sanctuary, chapter 9, verse 8, and its sacrifices, chapter 10, verse 9. So these things of earth, these created things, they will be, they have been shaken. They are temporal. They will not remain. But those that will remain are eternal. Those things belonging to Mount Zion will not be shaken. And so the clear call here is to put our faith in the eternal, unshakable kingdom of God. If we're going to stay on course as we run this race, we need to put our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And oh, how we've been reminded of this in recent days. I mean, you look around us today and you think about 
the things in our world that so often we are tempted to put our hope in, the things that so often so many people put their hope in, their job, their finances, their health, this sense of security these things give. And then what have we seen happen in recent months and weeks? We've seen how one virus from the other side of the world can completely shake all of that. Well, we've seen how unstable and how unsecure the things of this world are we live in a world today that is being shaken greatly and for so many of us everything around us has been affected and here God's word calls us to do what calls us not to put our hope in the things of this world not to put our hope in our job or our finances or our health or all these things that we look to for security, to put, to put our hope in an unshakable kingdom, to put our hope in the eternal city of God, to put our focus on Mount Zion. So here's the thing about that eternal city. As everything around us today is being shaken, God's kingdom is not. As everything around us in this world we live in seems to be affected by coronavirus, coronavirus isn't doing anything to God's kingdom. It's not shaking it. It's not moving it. God's kingdom stands. In fact, in God's kingdom, from God's kingdom, He is sovereign over all these things that are taking place. And so it's a reminder to us to put our hope in that which is secure and unshakable in the eternal kingdom of God that we come into through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we as believers take comfort when we sing words like my hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It is a reminder to us of where our hope should be. And so, brother or sister, if you find yourself today anxious or overwhelmed, put your hope in Jesus. If you find yourself today just overwhelmed by a shaking world, put your hope in in Jesus. The, the picture here is almost that of being in the midst of an earthquake and the very ground beneath us is opening up, but we have something to hold on to. We have something to firmly grasp onto. In fact, we have something holding on to us. And it is the kingdom of God. It is the great, strong shelter and foundation of Mount Zion. It is the city in which we place our hope. So how do we stay on course as we run this race and it feels like the ground beneath us is about to open up? We place our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then finally, point four, we worship God with gratitude, with reverence, and with awe. The writer here calls us to worship God with gratitude, with reverence, and with awe. Look to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And so the, the writer here in essence has, has built this argument. And he said, but because of the new covenant, hope that we have through Jesus, because he's given us his word and his word gives us eternal life, because our hope rests in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, 
Because of these things, now we can worship God with gratitude and with reverence and with awe. When you think about the significance of what that means to, to worship God with gratitude. Again, consider the context here. Consider who the original audience is here. That these Hebrew believers who had had their, their property plundered, that their livelihoods ruined, their faith attacked, who were under heavy persecution. What are they told to bring them comfort? Therefore, let us be grateful. <laughs> now, we can be sure that the writer of Hebrews here is not just giving them some flippant instruction. He's not saying, well, just turn that frown upside down. <laughs> He's not saying, you just fake it till you make it. No, no, he is clearly saying here that in the midst of a shakable world, in the midst of having property plundered, in the midst of having reputations destroyed, in the midst of having, uh, being under personal attacks for your faith, he's saying even in the midst of those things, we can worship God with a thankful heart. Because his kingdom is not shaking. His kingdom is not falling apart. And he is sovereign even over these things we are experiencing now. That's why the consistent call in the scripture is to give thanks to God no matter what our circumstance. To give thanks to God in every circumstance. Well, we just don't thank God when we make the touchdown. Well, we thank God in the midst of our trial and suffering as well. Colossians 3 verse 15 and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Then in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so today, this Lord's Day, each of us is called to be thankful. We may look around and we may see things that would incline us not to have thankful hearts. We may be surrounded with grief and turmoil and trial and suffering. And yet in the midst of those things, friend, God's word is calling us today to have thankful hearts. Rather than sitting in front of your computer screen right now, in front of your television set right now, perhaps by yourself, perhaps just with your immediate family, rather than looking at your situation and your circumstancing and bemoaning it and complaining about it, and we should look to what we have today, to the situation and circumstance we're in today, and we should thank God for it. Thank God. For everything that he's placed in your life today. Whether it is bringing you anxiety, worry, grief, or whether it brings you great joy. In all things, give thanks. I mean, be thankful that we have the opportunity, even in the midst of the chaos of coronavirus. So we have the opportunity each Lord's Day to sit under the teaching of God's word. We have the opportunity each Lord's Day to, to lift our voices. And while they may not be in the company of the congregation, they are in the company of the saints who are dispersed, but are lifting their praises to God. I thank the Lord for that opportunity He's given us today. Thank God that His Word is being proclaimed today. 
I've read account after account of folks who, as they are putting God's Word online and putting God's Word out there in, in brand new ways, how more and more people who, who weren't stepping foot in a church are hearing the Word and responding to the Word. Well, we have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this coronavirus. But we know this. We can be thankful for it because He is sovereign over it. Be thankful worship him with gratitude he says as well we're to worship with reverence and with awe so so gratitude in this context comes from knowing that our names are written in the lamb's book of life in heaven it's a thankfulness for what god has done for us in christ jesus it's a, it's a thankfulness for our present situation and circumstance whatever that may be and then he turns to reverence and awe which come from an appreciation of who god is the, the reverence and awe comes from understanding who God is. It's a respect for His holiness. It's an appreciation for His attributes. It's an understanding that God is a consuming fire, that He is holy and He is righteous. So when we come to worship, our primary concern should be how God desires to be worshipped. What is acceptable to Him? This is a good reminder for us at any time, but I think particularly it's a good reminder for us now during this season when we've not been able to gather together, during this season when we are anticipating the opportunity to gather together, and yet we understand that's going to look very different. As we put out uh, thoughts about what that might look like, our, our inclination can be to think very selfishly. Our inclination can be to think about what, what we want, rather than what will bring God glory. In fact, in many of my conversations, and even the things I find myself saying in recent days, as I think about us gathering again together, I think about how much I miss being with everyone and how much I'm looking forward to being together with folks. And that's a good thing uh, many of you today you, you might long to gather with the congregation because you, you miss worshiping together with the congregation you you miss sitting in pews you, you miss hearing the organ or the piano you miss being in the company of God's people as we sing together and worship together and study study God's word together and, and those things that rightly should be missed but our primary concern whether we are worshiping during this time of dispersion or whether we are worshiping as we regather, our primary concern should not be our desires and our wants and even what we might perceive as our needs. Our primary concern should be how can we worship God rightly? How can we worship God in a way that is acceptable to Him? Worship, friends, is not about our personal preferences. Worship, foundationally, is about what God desires and what God calls us to do. And so, as much as we miss so many of those personal preferences, we, we need to ask ourselves today where we are, not, not where we're going to be, but today where we are in our present situation, how can I offer God acceptable worship? 
in my present situation, in your present situation, how can we worship God with gratitude, with reverence, and with awe? And when our situation changes, when we gather in a few weeks in the gym, or one day, Lord willing, back here in these pews, we need to ask, will our concern be what God desires and what God deems acceptable? Or will our driving concerns be our personal preferences and desires? Because the picture we have here in Hebrews 12 is a picture that reminds us if we're going to stay on course, we need to run the race that God has set before us. Well, we don't go and pick and choose our course. No, we have a course laid out for us. We have a course that has been laid out for us under the new covenant through the blood of our Savior, our mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the course we're called to run. And in order to stay on this course, we need to understand how we're to run it under this new covenant. We need to live in obedience to God's word. We need to place our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we need to worship God with gratitude, reverence, and awe. And friends, that is my prayer for us, that we would do these very things, because my hope and my desire is that through this, this chaos that we find ourselves in today, I hope and I trust that God is at work in us to bring about His will and to accomplish His good purposes that we might cross the finish line. So pray with me that we would do those things empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so I want to pray that for us today, if you would pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you have laid out for us the course. We thank you that Jesus has run the race before us. And we thank you, God, for the encouragement that we have here in Hebrews of what it's going to take for us to stay on course. And so, Father, help us to do these things, empowered by your Holy Spirit. Help us today, Lord, not to be thinking about how we might do this in the future, but to think about how can we do this here and now? How can we today worship you with, with gratitude and with reverence and with awe? How can we today put our hope in a kingdom that cannot be shaken? How can we today live in obedience to your word? If there's an area of our life, there's an attitude in our life that's not reflective of repentance, if it's not reflective of your word, Lord, help us to repent and live in obedience to your word. And Lord, help us to remember the, the, the great promise that we have through the new covenant and the picture we have of the course we're running on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.